You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Lars Sandbeck. He is a lecturer in theology at the Center for Pastoral Education and Research for the Danish National Church, and he is speaking to us from Copenhagen. Hi, Lars. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm fine, and thank you for having me here on your podcast. Well, I'm real pleased to get to talk to you because I think there's something really fascinating and interesting that's developing in the situation of Lutheranism in Denmark, and I'm interested for you to tell us the story of this, and so maybe the best place to get started if we're going to talk about Lutheranism is about Luther's theology. So what was Luther's theology? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start because the story I, I want to tell is about how uh, the main part of the Danish church, the, the pastors in the Danish church, today believe something quite different about God and salvation than Luther did himself. Luther, of course, believed that uh, only some people would be saved and that most part of humanity would be eternally lost. And he also was a double predestinarian. Uh, he was he stood in the line of the late Augustine, the late Augustinian theology, uh, the, uh, Augustine's theology of grace, and uh, believed that that God sovereignly elected who would be saved, and left the rest for eternal uh, damnation. And uh, today, the the pastors I meet in my job when I'm teaching pastors in the Danish church. Very rarely I meet somebody who actually believes that some people will be lost forever. So so that's basically the, the development from Luther's own position to that of contemporary Lutheranism in Denmark I, I would try to focus on here. And and I think if, if we want to go a little bit in detail with Luther's own theology and his own theological development, I think it's a good place to start with his entrance into the monastery. Uh, he became an Augustinian monk uh, as a young man. And what drove him to seeking this holy way of life uh, was basically fear. Uh, fear of not being worthy of salvation, fear of the final judgment, fear of eternal suffering in hell. And in Luther's case, case it, it turned out, I think a lot of people at Luther's, Luther's time was really, really afraid <laughs> uh, for the final uh, judgment. But in Luther's case, case, it took a kind of, it was a certain kind of fear which has to do with the idea of work righteousness. That is, he was not only afraid of being rejected by God at the final judgment, 
but uh, he experienced in uh, as a monk he experienced all the troubles of trying to merit salvation try to work work your way to your own salvation so so at the beginning luther was was a kind of what he would later call a pelagian believing that it's really up to us humans to save ourselves that we are, every human person is born under the with the predicament of eternal condemnation from god because we are all imbued by the original sin of adam and our nature is totally corrupted and then we have to find a means to escape a means of escape so we can escape the eternal so salvation for luther and this doesn't change in his theology salvation for luther is first of all means escaping damnation means escaping hell but what did change was the means of escape for luther at the beginning he thought that the way we humans can escape is by doing good works basically by repentance and by uh, so to speak meriting our way of achieving our own salvation by doing good deeds and that was what he thought when he was a monk and here he i think that uh, it's not an it's not exaggerated to claim that that luther at least a, a great part of his life suffered from a kind of pathological anxiety he was really afraid and constantly afraid of uh, the eternal uh, damnation so when he was a monk he he became a religious uh, high achiever in the monastery he he tried to outperform every of his every other monks in the monastery he was uh, working harder working harder and working more than than his fellow monks he was uh, every day he was uh, confessing his sins and often this was going on for several hours at a time his uh, prior at the monastery even tried to convince him not to confess that many sins all the time and luther really confessed every minute insignificant sin he could think about forgetting to put the chair back at the table or dropping a loaf of bread or something like that would make him be even more afraid of the wrath and condemnation of god so so that's part of his development this high performing high achieving kind of monk who, who wanted to perform better than all the rest in order to stand prepared at the day of judgment before god so that he can present god his uh, achievements his uh, good deeds and god will not condemn him to hell so it seems like luther he um almost became obsessive about trying to make the perfect confession and live the perfect life mm. and this was this was driven in a way of a fear of final judgment exactly. and so he just he almost in an obsessive way kept working on making the perfect confession and trying to live the perfect life mm. it was it was a kind of obsession and his uh, some of the monks at the same monastery actually uh, ridiculed luther for his behavior and uh, said in in a kind of jokingly uh, laughingly way that uh, if luther was playing a game of bowling he would try to hit, hit 12 pins even though there's only 10 
on the lane in a way to try to describe <laughs> his <laughs> his obsessive way of of doing things so so not only was he afraid of of damnation and trying to be perfect obsessed about being perfect so that he can justify himself in front of god he was also being ridiculed at the monastery and i also think that this took so this was a blow at his self esteem and has uh, brought him to question himself very deeply that he was also kind of a laughing stock at that place so for many years luther was in a kind of vicious circle because what he re- came to realize was that this was not a means of escape that worked for him at all on the contrary the harder he worked the more he tried to achieve, uh, the less he actually had, had faith in God. The more he, he began to, so to speak, undermine his confidence that he would be able to stand prepared at the final judgment. So, so in a way, he, he kind of realized in the hard way that what, what he wanted to achieve was the acceptance of God. But what he realized is if you try to force an acceptance from somebody. You can never really trust that acceptance you get. Maybe I can illustrate it. Uh, if I were to pay you $10,000 and say to you, now you have to like me. Now you have to like me uh, as who I am. I will probably not get that uh, recognition from you. You'll probably be happy that you got a lot of money and you like me for that reason but it wouldn't be me you would like. And I think that's the same kind of psychological problematic Luther came to experience was that the more he tried to, so to speak, (laughs) bribe God into liking, accepting him, into wanting to save him, he realized that that's not the way to do it. I will will only be be more uh, doubtful about my own salvation. I will always be able to doubt whether I have done enough and whether I should do even more to achieve this desired salvation. How did Luther work his way out of this then? Well, he did so by, uh, of course, reading the Bible, by becoming more acquainted with the Augustinian theology of grace. Through his prior, who was called uh, Johann von Staupitz, he learned that maybe uh, salvation is not about what we do or, or decide or want, but about what God wants. So, so he slowly became acquainted with a different kind of theology that seemed to put the full responsibility for salvation more on Christ and on God's dealing with us than on our own uh, activities and, and dealings. In, in the Lutheran self-understanding, Luther, of course, came to this understanding of salvation, that, that salvation is the work entirely and solely of God through careful studying of the Bible. He read, uh, read a lot of uh, Paul Paul's letters, especially letters to Galatians and Romans, but he read those letters through an Augustinian lens. Uh, so even though he his... Uh, Reformation insight was due to Bible studies. He has learned, he was beginning to learn to read the Bible in an Augustinian way, I would say. And we know what this means, I 
suppose. It means that emphasis from now on in Luther's theology would be put on the free gift of grace of God. And since Luther maintains this idea about a double exit, as I call it, that some people will be lost forever and only few will be saved, he also had to embrace Augustine's doctrine of predestination, the idea that God eternally elects who among the condemned mass of men, humans, will ultimately be saved and who will be lost forever. And I think this should not be a matter of debate. If we read what Luther is writing from the beginning of his publications, for instance, his lectures of the uh, Romans, toward the end of his life, he's really very consistent when it comes to this understanding of salvation, that it's God's work alone, and we as human beings can do nothing to improve our chances of salvation. We can really do absolutely nothing, because he now embraces the doctrine of original sin in this Augustinian understanding of it, that human nature is completely and totally corrupted by original sin. And therefore, no human person can actually merit grace from God anyway, because we have nothing to give God that he wants. Uh, everything a human person does is, per definition, evil and against God's will. Since we humans are totally corrupted by sin, every action we perform will, by definition, also be sinful. So we can really do nothing to placate God. Would it be fair to say then that for Luther, even faith itself was something that, a gift that God gave, that faith isn't something that humans can come up with? Luther was not a great systematic theologian. And when he writes about this very important concept of faith, which really is a, the central concept in, in his theology, well, grace and, and faith, both of them, He's not very consistent, but as I read him and understand Luther, faith is also a gift from God. So when we talk about the doctrine of justification in Lutheranism, it essentially means that we're saved by grace and faith alone. Grace understood in the sense that God freely, because of this substitutionary punishing of Christ on the cross, God freely chooses who he wants to grant this grace that Christ has achieved on the cross. And faith is what you need as an uh, individual. That uh, There has to be faith in you in order to receive this salvific grace from God. But then the question is, is faith then an active human response? Is it something that has to do with our consent, our free consent, to the uh, offering of God, uh, the offering of grace from God. And as I read Luther, the answer to that question is no, because he always claims, almost always claims, that faith is a gift by the Holy Spirit. And I can read you a passage where he says something to that effect, Okay. which is very clear, yeah, I think. Good. This is from his main work, which is called The Bondage of the Will, from 1525. Here he writes, who will try and reform his life? I reply, nobody, nobody can. God has no time for your practitioners of self-reformation. 
for they are hypocrites. The elect who fear God will be reformed by the Holy Spirit. The rest will perish unreformed. So the reformation of the human person, Luther is claiming, that is what faith is doing. It's reforming you in the sense that it drives out sin slowly and <laughs> steadily and perhaps even in a manner that is not detectable. You can't even experience it. Now at that time, following Augustine's interpretations, it would have been understood that, that the ultimate penalty of the damned would be eternal conscious suffering. Yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. For instance, in uh, the Lutheran confession known as the Augsburg Confession, which plays a huge role in Danish in the Danish Lutheran tradition, but not that huge a role in other Lutheran congregations, as I understand it. But in the Danish Lutheran Church, this Augsburg Confession from 1530 plays a huge role both theologically and juridically in the Church. And in this confession, we read in Article 17 that the Lutherans teach that at the consummation of the world, Christ will appear for judgment and will raise up all the dead. He will give to the godly and elect eternal life and everlasting joys. But ungodly men and the devils he will condemn to be tormented without end. And then the, it, uh, the confession goes on to a condemnation of the Anabaptists who think that there will be an end to the punishments of condemned men and devils. So this central Lutheran document really emphasizes that uh, two things I want to mention is that the torments are without end. It's eternal conscious torment. And they even condemn the uh, contemporary Anabaptists, uh, amongst whom at least some apparently believed that God would end the torment, the punishments. And the second thing I want to mention is that this passage quite subtly and doesn't make a great deal out of it, introduces the doctrine of predestination, the Lutheran predestinarian understanding of God's election, in that it is, describes that God will give to the godly and elect eternal life. And these godly and elect are not two different groups of people. You become godly by being elect, by being among, uh, elected by God, uh, in order that he will send his Holy Spirit in order to reform your heart and uh, make room for faith in you. And faith is, in Lutheran theology, always the opposite of three things. It's the opposite of reason, it's the opposite of good works, as such, and faith is the opposite of sin. Now, in Augustinian, the Augustinian understanding, one of the things also was that if you really were somebody who was one of the godly elect, that you would persevere in the faith all the way to the end of your life. And so, as I understand Augustine, he didn't think anybody could really be absolutely 100% certain that they were actually among the elect until they actually reached the culmination of their life and they died persevering in the faith. Mm. Would that have been part of the understanding as well? Well, Luther didn't didn't have an elaborate 
doctrine of predestination and a differentiated doctrine of grace as Augustine had. He didn't develop a doctrine of the perseverance of grace, for instance, uh, or preserving grace. But Luther's solution to this problem, which is a very, I think, we should not underestimate this problem from an existential and psychological perspective. When you introduce a doctrine like the doctrine of predestination, you create a new type of fear in people. Remember, Luther was afraid of not doing enough, not achieving enough, performing enough in order to merit grace. So he went from this kind of Pelagian extreme on the one hand to another extreme extreme on the other hand in embracing this idea that God in his sovereign will and power chooses among the mass of fallen humanity a few elect who will be spared the eternal suffering in hell. But the rest of created humans, he would simply leave, as, as I just quoted him, that the Holy Spirit will reform the elect, but the rest will perish unreformed. And perish here doesn't mean be annihilated. It means go to hell. And so how could I know if during that time, how, how could I have confidence that I was one of, that? how could I actually know and have confidence that I was one of the elect? Well, the, there's a simple answer and a bit more uh, complicated answer. The, the simple answer is you couldn't. You can't. You, you don't know if you are among the elect. You have to wait and see, so to speak. For some reason, Luther believed he, he was elect because he, he was chosen by God to reform the church. So, of course, he, he had to be, be elect. So for him, he, he, he was able to take great comfort in the doctrine of predestination because he, so to speak, experienced himself as one of, the, uh, one of God's chosen ones. But he, Luther had to face the problem then of the new Lutheran congregations when they came to embrace the new Lutheran and hence also the late Augustinian uh, theology of grace, they came to realize that this was a kind of determinism and fatalism. And if we humans can do nothing to improve our own chances of being saved and just have to wait and see, this causes a terrible fear in many people, uh, a cost of terrible fear and anxiety in many people in Luther's own days. So he had to write a lot of letters of consolation to terrified and uh, people, to, to desperate and despairing souls amongst the Lutheran congregations. And what he basically told these people as a kind of solution to the problem, well, we cannot... Mm -hmm. We cannot know who God has elected for salvation. But what we can do is to ignore the problem. Don't talk about it. And try to keep our mind and eyes fixed on the cross of Christ in an attempt to convince ourselves that Christ also died for my sins. Poor me, as it's Luther liked to pronounce it in Latin. Poor me. For me, he also died for me, because Luther had a limited doctrine of atonement. He 
explicitly claims that Christ, in his uh, lectures to the Romans, for instance, that Christ didn't die for every human being. God does not want to save everybody. He, he only wants to save the elect. So Christ only died in order to save the elect. So how do I know that I'm elect? Well, you, you can know for sure, but you can try in a, in a kind of psychological trick to convince yourself that maybe uh, that, that Christ actually died for me by ignoring the doctrine of predestination and focusing on Christ alone. And I want to read to you two passages, passages from letters Luther wrote to people, ordinary people at the time, who was terrified by this doctrine of predestination. The first letter is, is from, I read from, is from 1545. That's a year before Luther died. So you can see he's still, to the very end of his life, host to this doctrine of predestination. And he writes, my dear friend has told me that you, and that is some of the troubled souls of a Lutheran congregation, are at times tempted with thoughts about the eternal predestination of God and has asked me to write you this letter about the matter. And then I skip apart. To combat this temptation, we should know that we are forbidden to understand this matter or to concern ourselves with it. For we should be glad not to know what God wants to keep secret. I think this, it's a bit difficult uh, to be glad for something that's this terrifying. But we should be glad not to know what God wants to keep secret. God has given us his son. So here comes the solution to the problem, the existential solution. God has given us his son, Jesus Christ. Daily, we should think of him and mirror ourselves in him. There, we shall discover the predestination of God and shall find it most beautiful. For apart from Christ, all is danger, death and devil. But in him, all is pure peace and joy. Therefore, avoid and flee such thoughts and temptations. Instead, look at Christ. So I think this quotation somewhat speaks for itself, but, but to boil it down a little bit, there's a kind of double strategy going on here. Uh, the one part is to uh, that Luther is claiming that it, we should look at Christ because in Christ we see here we see the predestination of God. But he doesn't mean it really in the sense that, well, Christ came and died for all people. Therefore, look to Christ and be consoled in your fears and anxieties. What he actually thinks is that Christ only came, to, only died on behalf of the elect. But what we have to do is to try to convince ourselves Try to uh, a kind of I don't know what how you describe it in English, but it's a it's a kind of psychological trick, uh, a kind of perhaps parallel to to a sort of denial denial, right? Imagine that someday one day a person came to my house, and he held up two pictures before my eyes, and and on each picture there was uh, a person. On the one picture there was this terrifying looking guy, perhaps. I don't know, Putin or something like that. And he, he was claiming that if this guy arrives tomorrow, he will 
kill and torture your kids in front of you and burn down your house and destroy you. But on the other picture, you see this friendly looking kind of guy. And if he arrives tomorrow, he will help you through coping with all your problems and he will bless your family and you will live happily ever after. But I can't tell you who is arriving tomorrow. I cannot disclose to you who, who of the persons it would be. So my suggestion to you is take the one picture of the terrifying looking guy and throw it away or burn it or something and try to forget about it and put the other picture in front of your face and try to convince yourself that it will definitely, definitely be this one who arrives tomorrow. That is the basic thrust of Luther's advice and his counsel to, his, to these desperate people. And in a letter to a woman named Barbara Lichner, this is a letter from 1531, Luther seems to, seems to realize somehow that, that maybe this attempt to mirror Christ or, or, or look at Christ as in a mirror and try to, in order to reflect, so to speak, the righteousness of Christ and, be, and convince myself that I am a, one of the chosen ones. It, is, it seems that Luther realizes that maybe this doesn't work, that this attempt of consolation is not that efficient. So he writes to this woman uh, basically the same thing, that among all the commands of God, the foremost is that we should place his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ, before us. This woman was really perhaps on the brink of committing suicide because of, of, of going mad, because uh, of speculating about the predestination of God. Christ must be our daily and foremost mirror. In him, we see how God does indeed love us and how, as a good God, he has so thoroughly provided for us that he even gave his dear son for us. But when thoughts of rejection come to you and bite you as fiery serpents, then whatever you do, pay no attention to these thoughts or serpents, but turn your eyes away from them and look at Christ who was given for us. Then, God willing, matters will be better. But we must fight and constantly rid ourselves of these thoughts of doubt. If they come to you, let them go away, just as you would spit out of any mud that may fall into your mouth. And I also think that this... Well, if, if, you, if you're depressed or meet a person who is really depressed, it doesn't help that much to say, well, you just have to think happy thoughts, right? That's the problem of being depressed, that you're not capable of thinking happy thoughts. And if you're afraid of being rejected by God, what you should do is trying to forget those thoughts, throw them away like mud you would spit out of your mouth, throw, uh, forget those thoughts and keep your eyes fixed on Christ instead. And maybe that will, in time, if God wants to, it will make, make matters better for you. So that was as far as Luther could go in order to deal with this absolutely horrifying picture of God, which emerges from the doctrine of predestination, that God has created all of, all of us. But some of us, he has nonetheless he knew when he created us that the great majority of us would actually end up in hell okay so what what luther ended up doing was he solved a problem for himself mm -hmm. 
But in a way, he created another problem. He he was satisfied since he was, you know, since he was, nobody was more committed than he was, and God had given him this revelation. He was convinced that he was of the elect. But then, you know, the average person living their lives who wasn't, you know, 100% all the time involved like Luther was, then they had to wonder, well, how do I know when I'm doing enough to know that, to feel confident that I'm one of the elect? And so the solution that Luther gave was, well, just don't, don't really think about that. Cast those thoughts away. Look at mm-hmm. Jesus and cast those thoughts away. But then psychologically, the problem is, is if you tell somebody not to think about something, it's really hard for them not to think about what you've told them told them not to think about. That created an ongoing issue. So he went from the problem of work righteousness to the problem of predestination, basically speaking. And and if you read Article 20 of the Augsburg Confession, it's really almost as reading a kind of autobiographical, what do we call it? Uh, autobiographical. How do we pronounce that? Yeah, autobiographical. Autobiographical account of Luther's own existential problems and his way out of that. Because this Article 20 of the Augsburg Confession deals with the problem of work righteousness and uh, doing good works and how this is not a way to receive uh, salvation. And here, so in it, we, we read that the doctrine of justification by faith alone and grace alone is despised by the inexperienced. Nevertheless, God-fearing and anxious consciences find by experience that it, this doctrine of predestination, etc., brings the greatest consolation, because consciences cannot be set at rest through any works, but only by faith, when they take the sure ground that for Christ's sake they have a reconciled God. Before, uh, that is, before the Reformation took place, before Luther's theology, consciences were plagued with the doctrine of works. And uh, here we should really think about Luther's own conscience. Consciences were plagued with the doctrine of works. They did not hear the consolation from the gospel. Some persons were driven by conscience into the desert, into monasteries, hoping there to merit grace by a monastic life. Some also devised other works whereby to merit grace and make satisfaction for sins. Hence, there was very great need to treat off and renew this doctrine of faith in Christ to the end that anxious consciences should not be without consolation, but that they might know that grace and forgiveness of sins and justification are apprehended by faith in Christ. So here, the problem, this, uh, the, the Lutherans here explain why they had to develop a new doctrine of justification and, and correct, so to speak, correct the Catholic Church on that point. It's because a lot of people, and here we might simply imagine Luther himself, but a lot of people were anxious and terrified because they couldn't find consolation in the attempt of merit grace by their own deeds. So therefore, it was necessary to develop a new understanding of salvation. But then, as you point out, we just get from one problem to another problem, namely 
the problem of predestination. And Luther's only solution to that problem is don't think about it. Keep your thoughts and eyes and mind fixed on the cross of Christ. And we even have altarpieces also in Denmark depicting this situation because this goes very deep in the Lutheran understanding of what proclamation and preaching the gospel is about. In Denmark, we have this phrase that goes, uh, proclamation of, of, of preaching is simply pointing to Christ, pointing at Christ. And on one of the altar pieces we have here in Denmark, there's a picture of a church, in, inside of a church. On the one end, you see Martin Luther standing on the pulpit of preaching. On the other hand, you see the angels' congregation who are on their knees and praying. And in the center, you see Christ on the cross. And Luther is standing there pointing at Christ. And all the scared and afraid, desperate people are looking up at Christ, at the uh, picture of Christ on the cross. And I always... I'm always amazed when I look at this picture because there are no windows in the church. You're not capable of looking out at the real world, so to speak. The painting pictures a situation where the congregation, the vision of the world outside the preaching room is blocked from them. So they can only see, they can only look at and hear what is talked about inside the church. So that is basically uh, proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel is for Luther a matter of consolation, an attempt to console persons who are afraid of being non-elect, being rejected by God. So that would seem that, that what would happen then spiritually in the practice of Christianity in people's lives, that there would you would spend a lot of time just reflecting on Christ. You yeah. would try to make thinking about... Re- Christ and reflecting on Christ, that wasn't something that you were doing just to be grateful, but to also assuage your anxieties and your fears. So every time you got anxious and afraid, you would just think about, you would think about Christ. So a lot of reflection, that would drive a lot of reflection on Christ then. Yeah, Christ is a kind of antidepressive. And this also, (laughs) this also explains why the sacraments play such a huge role and a different role in Lutheranism than in Calvinism. Why Luther was so insistent that upon the real presence of Christ in the bread and the the wine. Uh, In order to bring consolation to the anxious anxious people, he had to point out that you are really receiving the blood and body of Christ now. This is really uh, uh, the same effect as pointing to Christ when you're preaching. The the sacraments have to console the the troubled soul. And so therefore, the the sacraments could not be understood as signs, signs pointing or symbols pointing to something which is absent. You have to get this cannibalistic (laughs) kind of impression of the uh, sacraments that, that you really receive the absolution, the forgiveness of sin, you really become one with the atonement. You become one with the suffering, the suffering Christ at this very moment, because that is what you need, existentially speaking, this is what you need to believe, you need to, in order to not be afraid any longer.
Now, would the in the context of that worship service, would there be a time when the the minister, the Lutheran minister, would declare some kind of forgiveness? I'm not sure about how it works historically speaking, but at the end of the supper in the Danish liturgy today, it is mentioned that, and it goes back perhaps a hundred years or more, that Christ has now atoned for all our sins. So it's declared at the end of the supper that this has now taken place, that that the purpose of this meal is not in that sense communion or, well, it's a kind of communion with Christ, but in order to hear it said out loud that uh, you have received forgiveness for your sins. But this, of course, doesn't help when it comes to original sin, which is where baptism enters in, in Luther's theology. Because baptism is uh, the means of driving out, or, or actually not driving out original sin, because it's still in you, according to Luther, after baptism. But there, the infant receives the forgiveness of original sin. It's imputed to him, a kind of forensic declaration that God will not count original sin as a deadly sin any longer. That's the effect of baptism. In the worship service, then when the sins are, the minister pronounces the sins forgiven, is that until the next worship service or is that forever? That's until the next, uh, well, there's a uh, precise system here. But the basic idea is that when you come to church because you are afraid, you come to church because you have doubts whether you are elect by God. So you are afraid of your own destiny. And therefore you come to church in order to hear about Christ and to receive Christ and to hear it said out loud to you that your sins are forgiven. But then during the next couple of days, you might be afraid again. And then you have to come next Saturday, uh, Sunday to hear, these, uh, hear Christ preached again. You need to point at Christ all the time. You, as I just read to you from the letter to Barbara Lichner, he says to her, but we must fight and constantly rid ourselves of these thoughts of doubt. Constantly, it's, it's an ongoing, returning, ever returning doubt that might enter the mind. And, and therefore, we have to go to church. It's not done simply by one, one service, because these existen this existential anxiety will always return, because you can never know. You, you can never, really, really never know if you are predestined for salvation or not. So you have to keep up this. You have, have to build off, up all the time, rebuild and build up your faith and confidence that God will save you. But that's no. not where our story will end, of course, because something developed further on. Yes, yeah, I think that this would be a good time for us to to move forward and uh, to talk about what 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 further developments there were. Yeah, the first one I, I think was when we come to 1580 to the uh, where the Lutherans at that time made another kind of confession uh, and which actually functioned such as such in, in some church, Lutheran churches the, the the text known as the Book of Concord from 1580. Here we find uh, the chapter 11th article in that uh, book 
addresses the question of predestination. And it's a very confusing and hard to, uh, it's uh, and actually also un-Lutheran in some aspects, it's understanding of predestination we, we meet in this text. Uh, first of all, it goes on to claim in, in very Augustinian and Lutheran and Calvin, Calvinist fashion that the predestination or eternal election of God extends only over the godly beloved children of God, being a cause of their salvation. Upon this predestination of God, our salvation is founded so firmly that the gates of hell cannot overcome it. And that makes sense, of course. If God has really chosen that he wants to save you, nothing can change that. That's a fact. And you, you or any other person or even the devil cannot alter that. So that's a very firm faith you can have. Then it goes on to, to claim that the predestination of God is not, again, following Luther's own counsels and, and advices, the pre, this predestination of God is not to be investigated in the secret counsel of God. So you, you shouldn't speculate about, uh, has God really chosen me or not? Instead, you need to seek it in the word of God, where it is also revealed. In the word of God here is, of course, Christ. You should not speculate about how God in his majesty, in, in his omnipotent and sovereign majesty, which we don't know anything about and which Luther called the hidden God or the hiddenness of God. There's something hidden in God. His, his ultimate will, we cannot say anything about and we don't know anything about it. But then God has revealed himself to us in Christ. And there he has revealed that he wants to save us, but he hasn't revealed whom among us he wants to save. He's only revealed that in Christ there is salvation. And so we have to keep our eyes and mind fixed on him, on the word of God. But, and now it moves on to an interesting passage where it actually opens up for the doctrine, for an idea of universal salvation which it doesn't embrace at, at the end, but listen to this. But the true judgment concerning predestination must be learned alone from the Holy Gospel concerning Christ, in which it is clearly testified that God has concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all, and that he is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and believe in the Lord Christ. These are some quotes, quotations from uh, Romans and 1 Timothy, I believe, uh, 2 Timothy, uh, about God's uh, will to save all persons, every human being. So this is quoted here. And against Luther's own idea that God only wants to save the elect, and that there is only a limited atonement in Christ. This text now, about 30, uh, 34, 5 years after Luther had died, claims that, no, 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 God wants to save everybody. God wants all to be saved. And God is sovereign, so nothing can prevent God from achieving what he wants. So now it seems that if God wants, indeed wants to save everybody, and God wants, and, and nothing can prevent God's will from, from being realized, then 
every human being must indeed be saved. But that's not the eschatology of this document, because this document also believed that only the few would be saved and the many would be condemned. So how does it solve that problem? Well, at first sight, it seems to make an, so to speak, Armenian move in the direction of blaming the victim, so to speak, blaming the human person, because it's your own fault if you don't receive Christ. If you don't want to accept God's generous offer of salvation in Christ, it's your own fault. And it's your, by your own free will that you deny Christ. So the, this seems to be the case at, at the beginning. However, that many are called and few chosen. It makes this distinction by be, between called and chosen. Everybody is called. Every human person is called, but only few are chosen. This does not mean that God is not willing to save everybody. But the reason is that they either do not at all hear God's word, but willfully despise it, that the, the damned will be damned because they willfully despise the word of God. Stop their ears and harden their hearts. This is an action uh, of the human subject, the human person himself. The, the, the damned person is a person who hardened his own heart. And in this manner foreclose the ordinary way to the Holy Ghost, so that the Holy Ghost cannot perform his work in them. So what the text claims here is that we possess the power to prevent the Holy Ghost and thus God himself from performing his salvific work in us. We can simply say no, we can reject it. Well, I've heard it said uh, sometimes that the way you can summarize Lutheran theology is that if you're saved, it's 100% because God wanted you to be saved. But if you're lost, it's 100% your fault. Yeah, it's it's what this text is actually claiming. It's exactly what the Book of Concord is claiming, that you cannot be saved by your own doings, by your own will, by anything you might come with by any kind of human activity. That's God's work alone. But when you are damned, it's because you won't receive it. You won't accept Christ in your life. And so you condemn yourself. And God cannot help you. He tries all the best he can. So this actually portrays God as a both omnipotent in one sense, when he is the persons who are saved, there is very omnipotent and his grace is completely efficient. But his grace is inefficient when it comes to people who don't want to accept him. And now the text goes on to the last part, which I find really interesting in a <laughs> very problematic sense. By this brief explanation of the eternal election of God, his glory is entirely and fully given to God that out of pure mercy alone, without any merit of ours, he saves us according to the purpose of his will. So this uh, no, this part only underscores, uh, this was the wrong quotation, but this part underscores that salvation is the work of God alone. And then the document rejects, have some rejections, and the fourth and final rejection sounds like this. Also, we reject that not only the mercy of God and the most holy merit of Christ, but also in us there is a cause of God's election, on account of which God has elected us 
to everlasting life. Well, note this passage. In us, there is a cause of God's election. Now, what does that mean? It means that there must be an external criteria of election, external in relation to God, an anthropomorphic, anthropocentric criteria of election somehow. In the, the persons who get elected, in them there is something which is better, which God finds more attractive, which God wants to reward somehow. But the text doesn't mention what that is. Is it that the elect are a little less sinful than the rest of humanity? Is it that they have blonde hair? I don't know. There's no explanation of what it is in us which causes God's election. So God is rather passive now. He He's looking at every individual, and at some individuals, he finds something in them which deserves his grace. And now we are getting not just back to Augustine, but some, somehow also back to the Manichaean religion which Augustine left. Because in that religion, that doctrine of election actually was this, that, that there are some people who are better than others. There are, peop there are people that, that, that was called children of light or children of God. People who were capable mm -hmm. of spiritual enlightenment, of moral enlightenment, etc., and moral and, and of, of holiness, so to speak. And then there were other children who, from nature, were children of Satan or children of darkness. Evil, bad persons, uh, unspiritual persons who would never be able to live forever with God in his eternal kingdom. So... This text claims, without explaining how and why, but somehow there's something in the elect which causes God's election of them, on account of which God has elected us, the elect, to everlasting life. And so this text tries somehow to say that God's election is not arbitrary. God is, does not elect a few of us just for the sport of it, or just because he fancies to do so. There's a, God has some kind of reason for doing what he does. I think that's the main problem this text wants to address. Is, is God's election completely arbitrary? No, 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 no. He has a good reason for what he's doing. Because there's something in us which God is looking at and which he wants to accept. Now, I would say this is different than classic Calvinist doctrine. Because in Calvinism, it would be clear that election was completely unconditional in the sense that all would be rebels. Nobody would have inclination toward the things of God in a state of total depravity. So everybody would be rebels if it wasn't for the, the, the work of God. So it's not in Calvinism, it's not that God looks to see that some, somebody's going to be better than somebody else. It's the recognition that nobody's going to be any good unless God acts in their life and elects them and then gives them the spirit and in the faith, and then then that's when they start. Then that's when they start to to come to God. So this seems like this would be a difference then from Calvinism. Yeah, because uh, I think Luther and Calvin was saying basically the same thing. But this document, this later Lutheran doc document, 
takes another route and claims that, well, the elect are somehow more godly than the unelect in advance. Well, there is some con- yeah, there's some condition that's going on here, even though it's not spelled out exactly. It's not it's not unconditional election, it's conditional election now. Yeah, it's conditional election. You have uh, elect yeah, exactly. It's conditional election. And I think this text wants to improve the picture of God. It doesn't want to claim that God is the author of evil and that God orchestrated the fall in Adam's fall in in the Garden of Eden, and uh, and that God has created persons in order to deliver them to eternal conscious torment. The text wants to claim that right. no, 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 it's our own fault that we fell, and it's our own fault if we don't receive Christ. So the blame is entirely on our side. And then at the same time, it it wants to avoid this idea of an arbitrary will of God and claim that there's some conditions that must be fulfilled, but this condition is not definitely not related to our own doings. We've got some dissonance now that's building in the story. There's, yeah. Because it's not that you have done a lot of good deeds and then you have earned yourself the grace of God. No, 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 that would be the completely unlutheran take on the story but this so it's not your deeds that makes you deserve grace so there must be something prior to your deeds there must be something ontological in you as a chosen individual some natural i don't know what to call it inclination of holiness or something like that which god is able to detect and which he rewards by giving you his grace his grace. But I think this solution is really uh, confusing and really problematic for a lot of reasons. And I, and I don't think that this way of understanding, which is also called the single predestination, not double, but single predestination, I don't think this is very helpful in any sense and doesn't make any sense, actually. It's kind of quite confusing. And I think that if we look at, well, if we turn now to the Danish context after a long way around it, we would see that when the Reformation was introduced in 1537, we got this church, the king made this and his uh, theological advisors made this document that now the church is no longer Catholic, but Lutheran. So all the priests in the church are now Lutheran pastors, and this is the theology you, you believe in and have to preach, preach right? And in this document, the, the king actually forbids the pastors to talk about predestination. This is not an, an issue that should be addressed. This should be kept in silence, right? This is, we have learned this from Luther himself. If you, mm-hmm. when you, when you get a theological problem you cannot solve and which is actually quite terrifying and troublesome for you, just try to ignore it, sweep it under the rug and try to forget that there's something under there. And this official document actually claims that very explicitly. You're not to discuss or even talk about God's secret will of predestination. And I think that this has grown into this Lutheran 
tendency to ignore the problem rather than try to solve it has been the main way to deal with the problem of predestination and, and, and this image of God. It has been to take it very seriously that, that all we have to do and talk about is Christ. So the uh, Lutheran tradition in Denmark uh, during a, a couple of hundred years at least became very Christocentric, very focused on preaching and talking about Christ. And as you might remember in one of the quotations from Luther, he claimed that in Christ there's nothing but peace and joy and salvation. In Christ, if you look at Christ, you don't see a God who wants to condemn you. You don't see a God who wants to torture you. And you see the, a, a side of God who is all graceful, all merciful, and all loving. And I would say, to, to cut a long story short now, it, that in Denmark, we have ignored the more horrifying aspects of Luther's theology and focused on his preaching of uh, salvation and uh, grace in Christ to such an extent that over a course of time, a lot of people are convinced that God might simply be as he has shown himself to be in Christ. Or to put it in a more technical terms, there has in at least the last hundred years in German and Danish theology been a development where we have taken leave of Luther's doctrine, at least in the way Luther understood it, Luther's doctrine of the hidden God. His distinction between a hidden God, a God who cannot know anything about where the, the majesty of God, wherein lies God's apparently arbitrary will to save some and condemn others. And then we have the revealed God in Christ, the incarnate God, Luther calls it. And I want to read you a quote from Luther because I think this is quite explanatory, where he distinguishes between the hidden God or the majesty of God and God incarnate. Here he claims that it's from the, the bondage of the will. God incarnate was sent for this person. That is, to will, say, do, suffer, and offer to all men all that is necessary for salvation. That is the revealed God, the incarnate God. Here you see that he wants to save every, everybody. But then he goes on to claim, albeit many are being abandoned or hardened by God's secret will of majesty, so, they, so that they do not receive him. So in his incarnation, God comes to offer humanity, all of us, the salvation. But then in his, the hiddenness of God, in his, the secret will of God's majesty, he actively hardens or abandons some of us, or most of us actually, so that we won't receive him. This is, well, now it's, a little bit like when the cat is playing with the mouse, right? You know, the, the cat catches the mouse and then lets it go and then catches it again. And here Luther, uh, Luther is claiming that God in Christ comes to offer all of us his uh, eternal salvation, but then he actively sort of play a mind trick with some of us 
so that we won't accept it. And then he blames us for this lack of acceptance. Here, there's nothing in us that God is looking at when he chooses among us who would be elect and who would be rejected. Here, it is God who is doing, so to speak, the devil's work of bringing us away from Christ, actively bringing us away from Christ. But in modern Lutheran theology, this kind of schizophrenic distinction in God between a, a in, where there, there are two explicit purposes of God in, in the incarnate Son, in, in, in the revealed God, he wants to save. He uh, reveals that he wants all humans to be saved. But then at the same time, he has a secret will that he doesn't disclose to us, but whereby he hardens some of us and makes us reject Christ and then delivers us to that eternal uh, torment. And this distinction has, is not a popular one <laughs> uh, in contemporary Lutheranism. And all kinds of attempts to interpret it differently or simply to reject it entirely has been made. You had mentioned that there is a theologian, Eberhard Jungel, and he has done some uh, important theological work in this area. Yeah. He is. He, he died a few years ago uh, as an old man, uh, but he was one of the most influential German Lutheran theologians in the last decade. And he is uh, also very influential in Denmark. And he has written two books about this, uh, which is relevant in our context. The one is called Gericht und Gnade, which means justice and grace from 1988. And then an earlier book called God als Geheimnis der Welt, which means God as the secret or mystery of the world. And in these books, uh, Jüngel was a scholar of Karl Barth, even though Karl Barth was a profound theologian and Jüngel a Lutheran, he was very uh, much a scholar uh, and, and student of Barth. And he uh, accepted uh, Bar Karl Barth's critique of Luther's doctrine of the hidden God and claimed that there is no, uh, God doesn't have two faces so to speak. God is not like the moon that has a revealed side and a hidden side, a dark side to the moon, which you cannot see. God is exactly as he shows himself to be in Christ. So he wants to, so to speak, believe the revelation of God, take it seriously all the way through and not claim that there is a back side to God's revelation or hiddenness. He claims that if we have to talk about the hiddenness of God, it, it must be that it is hidden to our understanding how the creator of heaven and earth could become man in this uh, person and be put to death on the cross. Uh, he wanted to locate the mystery. He wanted to locate the mystery in a different place. Exactly. Exactly. The mystery is in the love of God. How uh, his theology is very much a theology of love based on God's revelation in Christ as love, infinite, complete love. So, so now we have one of the, I think, basic principles in place that leads to, universal, to a belief, or at least the possibility of universal salvation. That is a kind of, I just need looking for the word, right word, um, what do we call it in English, if, if God is a kind of split personality? There's a kind of, 
contradiction or schizophrenic schizophrenic or something in God. But if you have this more univocal vision of God, that God is not two dif- different things. What would you call that in English? Consistent. Consistent. Yeah, consistent be would be the word. word. Yeah, yeah, or unambiguous might be a word also, right? Or unambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. So Luther has this highly ambiguous picture of God, where God, so to speak, reveals that His love and mercy, and grace and all of that, but on the other hand, also keeps a part to Himself where He wants the damnation of a lot of people. So God has has this kind of two personalities going on at the same time. But Jung wants to really present an unambiguous picture of God, uh, uh, where God is love. And he bases that on God's self-revelation in Christ, which then leads to uh, Jüngel developing different understanding of judgment, of the judgment of God. And first of all, I think that in Lutheranism and in much uh, in a lot of Western Christianity at large, there's been a tendency to forget, and Jüngel points this out himself, there's been a tendency to forget that it is Christ and not some hidden and unknown deity that in the end will be the judge of the world. That the judge of this world is Christ himself. So we need to develop a Christocentric or Trinitarian understanding of the judgment of God. And that is what Jüngel sets out to do in this book called Justice and Grace. A, a Christocentric or Trinitarian understanding of judgment. And, and he claims that the grace of God, which is revealed in Christ, is not just the first, but also the final word of God. So the atonement and the self-sacrifice of God to of humanity in order to save humanity, in order to redeem us and uh, unite us with him is not just the word spoken to us on Calvary. It will also be the word of judgment. So he makes this, he tries to interpret the cross of Christ as the eschatological judgment. What is revealed in, in, at the cross of Christ is the eschatological judgment, where God destroys sin, where God takes sin upon himself in order to destroy it, so that we may be, all, and we here for Jüngel is all of humanity, may be delivered uh, and set free and finally be saved. So he, he said, claims that his understanding of judgment is that Judgment must be in this seen in the, as in the service of the atonement. He puts the atonement as the criterion for understanding judgment. The atonement in Christ mm-hmm. and to judge and to reconcile the world, he claims, are one and the same thing. To judge the world and to reconcile the world to God, that is one and the same act. And this is the act of will be fulfilled eschatological in, in the eschaton. But Jüngel, so I think that uh, Jüngel believed, he definitely believed in the salvation of all. But he wouldn't go so far as to present himself as a kind of dogmatic universalist. And he 
And I think he was very explicit about him correcting the Lutheran tradition and moving it in another direction and taking, but at the same time, recognizing that he was taking the Christocentric tendency in Luther to its theological conclusion. That if Luther is consist was consistent, he had to say that we need to point at Christ and you should keep your look your eyes fixed at the cross of Christ. In him you will find nothing but salvation, peace and grace and joy. And we need to take that to its theological conclusion and claim that what uh, what uh, meets us in that image in Christ is really God himself, fully and completely as God is. And I think that development is what has been going on in Danish theo theology as well, to, at least to some extent, and has slowly gotten out to most of the pastors in the church and and that is what is uh, to my best knowledge this is a message that is actually pro proclaimed in the churches in Denmark today so if uh, if i was to talk to the average lutheran pastor in Denmark and say have you ever heard of a theologian named Eberhard Jungel yeah they, they, they would were, probably be aware of him they would know who, who you're talking about. Another influential figure in Danish uh, theology is another German named the uh, uh, Maltmann, Jürgen Maltmann. Jürgen Maltmann. Jürgen Maltmann. And he was a reformed theologian who also embraces, and he lives still, by the way, uh, he embraces apocatastasis also. He's a universalist. And his theology has also had a... Yes, I quote, I, I quote uh, Jürgen Maltmann in my book and he was he was very influential he was very influential for me because in his his book or in his writings he's concerned about this the problem of the double exit that you're that you're talking about and he finally says that the way you have to resolve that is it finally has to be the decision of god and that the decision of god is yes for everyone in christ mm. and so he sounds sounds similar to uh, to this Eberhard Jungo. Exactly. They're, they're, I think they are very much uh, saying the same thing. They are also, both of them, post-Bartian theologians. So they are in this same tradition. I would say Karl Barth, Eberhard Jüngel, and Jürgen Waldmann are three very influential theologians in Denmark, especially when it comes to the doctrine of God, the Trinity, Christology, and eschatology. So practically speaking, you could say that among the ministers and the people that are trained theologically and thinking theologically, there's a lot of them that have gone ahead and moved this direction in their own spirituality. Hmm. Yeah, and I think there are several reasons for this. One is this theological reason I'm mentioning now with this dialectical theological tradition, starting with Karl Barth and then Jüngler and Waldmann. But another reason is this kind of inherent universalism in Luther's own theology, which I see when when he, um, well, that's definitely not Luther's own intent, but being so Christocentric as Luther was, and all his 
attempts to provide consolation for the troubled souls of his day and directing their attention to Christ and pointing to Christ. And all of these maneuvers, this is why I spent a lot of time with this topic, that, that Luther paved the way for a theological development he couldn't foresee and he probably wouldn't accept. When he was pointing so much at uh, the uh, atonement and uh, being so Christocentric in his own theology, there really is no escape to my mind. There's really no way to be that Christocentric and then to claim that God only... It seems an arbitrary attachment to Christology to claim that Christ only died for a few of us. That Christ is not the redeemer of the whole world. That Christ is not the carrier of not just the elect people's sins, but the whole world's sins. That's an arbitrary restriction of the salvific scope of Christ. And Luther knew that. So he even had to claim that Christ died on behalf of everybody. And then he had to introduce this monster God, the hidden God, who wants something opposite of what is revealed in Christ, namely to condemn a lot of us. And this schizophrenic tendencies, or this schizophrenic uh, uh, issue uh, have to be solved somehow. And, and you saw that the Book of Concord tried to solve it somehow, but didn't quite manage, I think. It's an unsuccessful systematic theological attempt to solve this problem. And the only real solution to the problem is following Eberhard Jünger. To my mind, that's at least where I stand. And I think that's also, uh, so, so there's a kind of dialectical tension within Luther's own theology, which I claim somehow historically leads to us in Denmark and, and other parts of the Lutheran world, focusing on Christ to such an extent that we completely become Christologically absorbed and forget all about predestination. And in, uh, I, I meet, uh, I regularly talk to pastors in the church, and they actually don't believe that Martin Luther had a doctrine of predestination. They don't think he had that, because they think that Luther had this unambiguous picture of God as a as revealed in Christ. They really believe that. And then when I point out that what Luther actually writes, they get quite surprised and disturbed by that. <laughs> that Luther was saying something that contrary to what they believed. But the final reason why I think uh, most people embrace universal salvation, uh, most Christian people in Denmark do that now, is also because the national church is a national church. And by that I mean that this is a church which uh, 74% percentage of the populations are member members. And many of them well, they believe in any, every everything, so to speak. They are not particularly Lutheran. Then maybe they're not even that Christian. All of the members they're members because that's a part of being a Dane. That belongs to the culture and the, the Danish national identity. 
And it's a beautiful tradition, I think, and I want to conserve the beautiful old medieval buildings and so on. But in order to be a church for such a diversified group of people, the church, we actually, as a national church, have to be very open-minded and inclusive, all-inclusive, actually. This is not a church that can be very strictly Lutheran because then it cannot be a national church anymore. Then most of the members will leave the church. So the Danish National Church is a Lutheran church and we are uh, officially obliged to preach a Lutheran theology, which means double predestination and a double exit. But we are at the same time a national church which has to embrace everybody and make room. It's a roomy church, so to speak. And in that roominess or inclusiveness, there's a kind of implicit uh, apocatastasis or implicit uh, universal salvation. Or, to put it more precisely, it's universal salvation in praxis. Nobody is asked what they believe. Nobody is forced to confess anything. No, Everybody is welcome. Everybody can come to the church and join the church. and Everybody can attend supper. They don't even have to be baptized, etc. So that's a kind of even a kind of very uh, extreme sort of uh, universal salvation people are not even asked to repent in order to to come into the church and be a member and and join uh, be part of the congregation and and i think when you go to i haven't also when if if you go to a funeral in the Danish church, everybody is clearly, everybody clearly believes or proclaims a kind of universal salvation. I've never heard anybody say at a funeral that maybe this Peter who lies in the coffin here, maybe he's not among the elect. Maybe he's not chosen. Maybe he's now burning in hell. Everybody believes and, and proclaims that he's now in the hands of God and he's has been received by Christ and the love of God in his infinite love and and uh, mercifulness will take care of him and is taking care of him right now. So there's a lot of different things going on here which leads to this situation we have in Denmark now that, uh, to my mind and in my experience, a vast majority of pastors in the Danish church actually believe in the salvation of all. Well, this is a very interesting story, how you get from Luther, and then after he dies, the the other uh, theological documents that get developed and how the focus on Christ uh, continues to, uh, to develop. And finally, you get to theologians that focus on Christ, like Eberhard Jungel and Jürgen Moltmann, Karl Barth, and who okay. see that in Christ, what we have revealed is the one salvific purpose of God, uh, an unconditional promise, a revelation of God's complete love. And, and that, in, that seems like that's where a lot of the energy is now among the, among the clergy and among the practitioners, the, the sort of the formal, the formal part of the church, the formal documents and the historical, the historical confessions haven't really caught up with that yet. But that's just the situation that that's just the situation as it is right now. Yes, I believe it's so. And and you're right. The confessions have, hasn't caught up with that, 
and therefore we can still have some very heated debates in Denmark uh, concerning this question about the salvation of all. Uh, because some people are afraid that if we were to officially accept such a belief, then we can no longer call ourselves a Lutheran church because the Augsburg Confession explicitly proclaims the salvation only of the godly and the elect and the eternal conscious torment of the reprobate. So there's a, this double exit in our tradition that we haven't dealt with. And, and we haven't in Denmark, well, this, this kind of drive toward universal salvation has been very implicit and has just taken place without us taking an, uh, a public or at least a th public theological, uh, in the theological world, a public discussion of this development. So now we are in a situation in Denmark where a lot of pastors are preaching and believing something that they are not entitled to, according to uh, the documents that uh, the, uh, the, the documents are actually uh, signed when they enter into service as a pastor in the church. There they are mm -hmm. uh, committed to a different eschatological belief than they actually have. And I have tried to raise this as a topic we need to discuss because a lot of pastors are feeling anxious and, and a bit afraid of saying out loud what they actually believe. And I think that's not a very healthy situation for a church to be in because it opens for maybe a kind of hypocrisy or anxiety and, and it's not helpful if we want to develop a, an interpretation of Christianity which makes sense to contemporary people if you have to do so with your arms tied to your back. Well, it just seems to me that with your theological background and training <clears throat> that you're able to see the whole picture and just to just to help people to work through this and to see how it all developed and kind of how it all, uh, there's a story to the whole thing and why we're talking about this and to, to be somebody to help have the con to help have the conversation. And it sounds like you're just getting now around to the point where you're learning how to have this conversation and how to look, how to look back and how to assess the tradition and, and uh, the, where the church is right now and in your history. So uh, I think you're doing a good, a, a good service there by being somebody who can talk about this when maybe there are certain pastors who feel like they can't talk about it. And so you're somebody who you can explain these things and, and you can help be a person to have this uh, conversation. It, it sounds like to me, if I look at this story, it, it, it is true that things do change in the Danish Lutheran Church, but they don't seem to change very quickly. It, there's a lot of time for contemplation and reflection, and sometimes things just go on for a long period of time, and maybe they're not all resolved. But it sounds like you're all involved in this together. You have a common heritage and history and tradition, and you love each other, and you're just trying to work this out and to have this conversation the, just the best way that you possibly can. I sincerely hope you're right. <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, we'll kind of wind it up on that note. That just to hope that everybody really is trying to do the best that they can, and that and, and trying to work together and make room for each other 
as best as we can. So that's what I'll I'll be hoping and praying for. But we'll we'll hopefully have a chance to check back in with you and and find out about how things are going. So Lars, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you. It was a great pleasure being here. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.